Good morning, Active Church. It is so great to see you. Hey, my name is Mike. I serve on the team this morning. And if this is your first time with us, what a gift it is to have you come and hang with us today. There's a place called Guest Central just outside in the lobby. Uh, we would love to meet you. We have a free gift for you. Our team, it's our way of just saying hi to you. And our team would love to put a face with a name. And so we hope that you'll stop by there. If you brought somebody, bring them by Guest Central because there is a free gift waiting for them. I'm wearing Active Church merch today. Somebody said, my friend David said, I look crispy. Was that the word that you use? Crispy? So hopefully that's cool. Um, I'm not sure. 43, I'm a dad. Not sure what's cool anymore. But uh, if you would like to get some merch, there is some available in our cafe and you can also go online and you can be crispy like me. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll dive into the story of God together. Heavenly Father, what a gift it is to be with these friends today. Thank you for their families. Thank you for their relationships. Thank you for their kids. Thank you for who they represent. And I pray that today our eyes would be open to what you have for us, that our minds would be stirred by what you want to say to us and that our hearts would be awakened and that we wouldn't be stuck in the things that we have been stuck in, that the past would not dictate what happens in the present and then no longer do we need to be afraid of it, but that we would have, have hope for the future. God, move in us. Wake, wake us up. Help us to be alive because you are the God of life. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things and together we say amen and amen and amen. We are in week three of a series called, Who Needs God? And that isn't a question. It's a statement that we've discovered a lot of people have made over the last few years. Because a lot of people have decided to walk away from their faith and to walk away from God. And we also have discovered that people have walked away not necessarily because of God. But they've walked away because of the people of God. Which is why... In week one, Pastor Lee was here and he shared with us a really powerful, extraordinary challenge of Jesus. One of the things that Jesus said to that first audience, that he says to you and he says to me, is that we are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. I am the salt of the earth. As followers of Jesus, we give life and preserve life and invite people into life. And we don't do this because we want to be really good examples, although we can be. We do this because we are transformed by the power of God through his Holy Spirit. That's why we can be the salt of the earth. We aren't just good people, but we are people that belong to a good God. And that invitation to be the salt of the earth is not an invitation that you have to measure up to, that you have to figure out. Jesus does all of the hard work and then he invites us into that work by joining him as we step into the future and we live with hope. And that's why you and I have the opportunity to be the salt of the earth. Then last week, we asked the question, what happens if you take God off of the table? Like if you leave God behind, what are you left with? And what we discovered is that what we're left with is more than just a disbelief in God. We actually lose all of the things that are valuable and precious to us, like identity and value and free will. We lose all of that, which is why at the end of last week, we challenged you 
to consider God. Now, we ask you to set an alarm at noon and pray with us. Either pray that God would show himself to you, like, God, open my eyes so that I can see who you are. Or maybe you would pray for someone else that you would ask that God would open their eyes as well. I don't know about you, but there were a few moments during the week where I forgot that I set my alarm at noon. And so when I was in the middle of a meeting, my alarm went off and the person looked at me and said, what was that? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm praying this week for these things. And I had somebody say, well, we're at lunch. Let's just pray together. And it was kind of a cool opportunity to be able to pray with another friend who is a follower of Jesus, didn't know what we were doing together. And so I was glad for that accidental alarm going off. But we invited you to consider God. But what I, what I think happened last week for maybe many of us is we felt a tension in our hearts. Maybe for us personally, but also for those that we're in relationship with. As we thought about what it means to consider God, maybe the tension you felt can be summarized in this question. What God am I considering? Because for all of us, we have at least one point in our history where we were introduced to God. Maybe your story is like my story. Like you were born on a Saturday and you were in the front row at church on a Sunday, right? Like your life was about church. My parents raised me in the church. I was baptized and came to know Jesus at eight years old. We were always a part of the church. Uh, full disclosure, when we missed a Sunday, I kind of got a little excited because this is what we did. And so if we missed a Sunday, I kind of felt like a rebel. I felt like, are people going to see us out and about and we're not at church? Do I still get into heaven if I don't show up? Like these were the questions an eight-year-old eight Mike was asking. But I was raised in this church. I was raised a part of the church. And so when I'm invited to consider God, I was invited to consider the God that I was raised with. I learned about and heard about. But I also know that many people that come to Active and watch online don't have my story. Like your story might be that you heard about God from someone who heard about God because they had someone that they knew went to church at one point in their church career, right? Maybe you heard about God because you were flipping through the channels one morning and you landed on one of those evangelists on television and you're like, someone's got to help him with his hair because that's just not okay, right? Or someone's got to help her with her makeup because that's just too much, right? Or maybe you had a grandparent or maybe you had an extended family member that was a part of the church and you knew that they were church people and all that you knew about God was that they were church people and that they worshiped God, but you were disconnected from it. Each of us, in some category or another, have heard about God or learned about God. And here's what I've discovered in the stories that have been shared with me, and I feel honored that they would be shared with me. Here's what I've discovered. That many of us, whether you had a story like mine or you have a story like I just mentioned, you, you're, you're disconnected, knew somebody who knew somebody that went to church. Each of us have heard about God or learned about God at a very young age. And as we grew up, the God we learned about as a child 
never actually grew up with us. And what I mean by that is we heard about God from mom and dad, brother, sister, aunt and uncle, grandpa and grandma, maybe a pastor, maybe a, a teacher at church. Or we heard about God through the rumor mill or through the conversations or we went to one service at one particular time. And we heard about God at, at, as a young child. But as we got older, we began to discover that maybe this childhood God didn't feel or seem relevant to the adulthood that we were living in. And it's why a lot of people have just decided to walk away. They're not antagonistic towards God. They're not angry towards the church. They just didn't feel like this God that they learned about as a child is relevant for them as an adult. The childhood God never grew up with them. Now, I want to be really clear about something before we say anything else. I am not saying that God needs to grow up. And I am not saying that God needs to change. In fact, I want to be very clear about something. And the writers of the scriptures are clear about this. That God is always God. And that the writer of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews, actually said that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's what that means. That the Jesus that I met at eight years old was the same Jesus that Peter knew, and John knew, and Mary Magdalene knew, and Matthew knew. Jesus doesn't change. Jesus is always the creator. He's always the sustainer. He is always the savior. He is always the Messiah. He is always the forgiver. He is always extending freedom. He's always filled with grace and mercy. He is always going to love you and love me no matter what we do. This is who he is. He was a sinless, selfless human on earth, God in the flesh who died on a cross. And then three days later, his tomb is empty because he resurrected. He is always God. And so when we talk about our childhood God, what I'm not saying to you is that he needs to grow up along with you and adjust to you. But what I am talking about is that our understanding of God needs to grow up. That our perspective of God needs to deepen. That maybe there's something that we were taught as a child that made sense to us as a child, but now needs to grow up as we have grown up. Here's a, here's a real life example for you, just so that you can understand what I'm talking about. If an eight-year-old came to you and said, where do babies come from? Initially, after you have your panic attack, then you would probably respond with some words that were really great because you're great. You would carefully, delicately, thoughtfully share with that eight-year-old where babies come from. And if you're wondering about that today, call your mom. I'm not going to explain it to you from the stage, all right? But if an 18-year-old came to you and asked you, where do babies come from? Your initial response might be, where have you been, right? Who's your dad? Who's your mom? And then you realize, oh, it's, it's you, right? Oh, it's me. And then you would carefully, thoughtfully, delicately share with the 18-year-old where babies come from. Now, here's what you already know, but I'm just going to say it out loud. 
that conversation is going to be very different with the 18-year-old than it was with the 8-year-old, right? The details that you share with the 18-year-old are probably not the details that you would share with the 8-year-old. What changed? Their understanding of where babies come from. What didn't change? Where babies come from. It's always been the same. But how we talk about it, that can change. And I think for a lot of us, the God that we heard about or learned about when we were a child, that we didn't take into our adult years, that God that we walked away from or perhaps stayed away from, I want to be clear about something. That God might have never existed in the first place. So here's what I want to do today. I want to identify five growing up gods. Now, there's more than we could talk about that would take a few weeks, but I know that you're going to get hungry and lunch is calling, and so we'll just take about 30 minutes, 40 minutes together. But I want to talk about five prominent perspectives that we hold of God, and I want to deconstruct those perspectives. And then I want to reconstruct who God is and what God does in the image of who God says that he is from the scriptures. This that I'm talking about this morning, the perspectives that we hold are, are the gods that somebody told us about or we learned about by watching somebody else. And what you might discover this morning is that a lot of our childhood gods that didn't grow up with us never actually existed in the first place. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't exist because he does. But what I am saying is that our perspective of God may have been inaccurate or may have been inappropriate or may have been incomplete and that there is more for us to learn as we talk about God. So I want to talk about five perspectives that we hold of God, but I have two questions for you, rhetorical questions. That means you don't have to answer them out loud, but something that you can think about, something that you can consider, and I think it's really important for this conversation today. The first one is this. Who told you about the God you grew up with? Was it somebody like in my life? Was it like a mom and a dad? Or was it somebody that was a part of the church? Or was it somebody because you went to church and you heard a pastor like me say something and that opens your heart and your mind to who God is and what God is about? Who told you? That's important. Because what I've found is that there are a lot of people who have really good information about God, true information from the scriptures. But there are also people who have modeled who God is that actually haven't modeled who God is at all. There are a lot of people who have made God into their own image. They've made God look and sound like them. If Jesus was walking the earth today, Jesus would talk like them and act like them and vote like them and eat like them and buy a house like them, that Jesus would be just like them. Which is why a lot of us are like, I'm, I'm not going near that Jesus. I don't want to have anything to do with that Jesus because the person that represents that Jesus is not somebody that is irresistible, at least the way that they live. So, so who, who told you about God? Where did that come from? Second question. Are you willing to grow in what you think you know about God? This will shape what happens from this point forward. 
Because for a lot of us, we have this understanding, whether we have an accurate understanding of God or an inaccurate understanding of God, we can come to a place where we're like, no, I got it. I figured it out. I don't need any help. And if that's where you're at today, I get it. It's your life. You can make those choices. But what I've discovered is that for those of us who actually are following Jesus and are confident in our in our following of Jesus and who he is and what he does, that we are also open to questions. We are also paying attention to doubt because those doubts lead us into good information, perhaps even like powerful information that's true about God. I don't think that I have it nailed down at 43 because I know I don't have it all figured out. I went to Bible college And I learned some things about the scriptures and I learned some things about God. But I'm telling you that I don't think I have it figured out. And I don't know if there ever is a point where I will have it all figured out. Because God's understanding, according to what I read in the scriptures, goes beyond my understanding. In fact, one writer says that he can do beyond what we ask or even imagine. And so I always want to lean in and bend the knee and surrender and listen and learn. All that to say... Are you willing to do the same? Because I think that that's how we become more like Jesus. When we lean in and listen, bend the knee and surrender, be obedient to who he is and what he has invited us into. I want to start with the first perspective of the God that we learned about as a child that perhaps didn't grow up with us, and we felt was irrelevant to our adult life. The first God I want to talk about is bodyguard God. Bodyguard God is a belief that a good God would not allow bad things to happen to good people. Here's the problem. Christianity started with a horrible thing happening to a very good person. Jesus, who was falsely accused falsely arrested, was brought on a, on, a, on a trial that was actually against the law of the time and then was convicted of things that he didn't do. And then, because he was convicted, John, who spent three years with him, records what happens next, that, that Jesus was flogged. That means beaten and whipped. And the Roman empire, they were really good at letting people know that they shouldn't cross them. Not just because there was this thing called crucifixion, we'll get to that in a minute, but because they were really good at beating men and women who they felt went against what the Roman empire wanted. Everybody was motivated by fear. Do not cross the Caesar and do not cross the leaders. And so when Jesus was flogged and he was beaten. It was terrible. In fact, Pontius Pilate, who oversaw all of this, he was the leader of that area. They bring Jesus back out in front of the crowd, and he says, behold the man. And he wasn't saying that according to theologians and historians, because they were bringing Jesus back out and he was reintroducing Jesus to the crowd. He said that because Jesus was beaten so bad he was unrecognizable. The prophet Isaiah actually writes about this in his document in the Old Testament when he says that Jesus will suffer, the Messiah will suffer. 
he speaks about how he will be unrecognizable. This is that moment where Pilate says, hey, you know the guy that we arrested falsely and accused falsely that you brought to us? Here he is. I know you don't recognize him. We've beaten him so bad, hoping that that would be enough for the crowd. And then we read, John records this, that they took a crown of thorns and they put it on the head of Jesus, that Jesus was abused. And they went up to him again and again and they said, hail, king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face and then eventually Jesus was crucified hung on a cross. This is why you might struggle and why Christians would struggle with the perspective of bodyguard God. Because Christianity started because the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person. In fact, the Christians in the first century that were really well-known, that were really great men and women, they were all martyred. And the ones that didn't die were actually sent to an island. That's John. He was dipped in boiling oil and asked to recant his faith, and he didn't. And so they dropped him like the original survivor on an island by himself hoping he would die. That's where the letter of Revelation was written, by the way. A letter that our church is going to go through after Easter. And this is how Christianity started. And this is what happened to Christians. Here's the point. Building a case for God, that there is a God based upon the lack of evil in the world, is not the message of Christianity and is not what Jesus talked about. Jesus didn't say, hey, there's evidence for God because there's no evil in the world. In fact, because there is evil and sin in the world, he said God doesn't stay away. God moves into the neighborhood. This is why Jesus came. But for some of us, the idea of God protecting you from bad things because you're a Good person is what you hung your faith on, and then something bad happened. And it's why you walked away. Or it's why you stayed away. If you lost faith in bodyguard God, good. Because that God never existed in the first place. Second perspective, on-demand God. On-demand God is a belief that God responds to fair and selfless requests the way that we would respond. We expect God to do for us what we would do for others, right? In fact, a lot of people have said, we're only doing what Jesus invited us to do that Matthew actually wrote down. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. And we have come to believe, for many of us, we've come to believe that this meant that God would do what we want him to do. We just need to ask selflessly. We just need to ask sincerely. Someone even would even use this language. Ask in faith. And then God will do whatever you ask him to do because he sees your heart. You're humble. 
and you're sincere. And wouldn't God do for you what you would do for others if they came to you and humbly asked, sincerely asked, genuinely asked for help? Why wouldn't God do the same thing? And so this is what you believed. And then you found yourself in a situation where you did that. You asked sincerely, selflessly, and nothing happened. You asked for an answer, you heard nothing. You looked for a sign and you saw nothing. It's why you lost faith. Or it's why you stayed away from faith. Can I just be real with you? It's okay to not believe an on-demand God because on-demand God does not exist. Who told you that? What caused you to believe in that? And I, I, I'll just be... I'll just be really vulnerable with you. I am glad that on-demand God doesn't exist. Because if God gave me everything that I selflessly and sincerely asked for when I was 15 years old, I would not have who I have in my life. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be married. I wouldn't have the kids that I have. And I wouldn't be able to be in your life. If God gave me everything that I sincerely, selflessly asked for. What about you? Where would you be if God said yes to everything you asked for? Where would you be if God gave you everything that you felt you selflessly, sincerely asked for? My guess is you probably wouldn't be where you are right now. You probably wouldn't know what you know right now and you probably wouldn't have the hope that you have right now because of the story that God has told in you and through you to get you to where you are today. I am thankful that on-demand God doesn't exist. And if you stopped believing in God because on-demand God was the God you believed in, good. Because that God never existed in the first place. Third perspective. Let's talk about Boyfriend God. Can we talk about boyfriend God? A belief that we will always feel the presence of God. Many of us have been convinced that if God is with me, I will always feel him. You'll get the, the God goosies, right? You're like, oh, that's it. You know what? Sometimes it's just because the, the, the bass hit at the right time during that song and you really like that worship song, Right? But we have come to believe that we're always going to feel God's presence. The problem is, is that feeling God's presence may not be the thing that you often feel most often. You might feel anxiety or worry or fear. You, you might live in that world more than you live in the world of feeling God's presence. And then we've convinced ourselves that because I don't feel God, God must not be present at all. Who told you that? Who taught you that? I want to say something to you. And if you miss everything else, awesome. Don't miss this. Do you know that you are least aware of the things that are most constant in your life? that you are least aware of the things that are most constant in your life. Here's an example. You walk into a room and the temperature is perfect. You know what you don't do? You don't lean over to somebody and go, isn't the temperature perfect in this room? No, you say it's too hot or it's too cold. 
Or you lean over to your husband and say, you're the pastor, tell him to turn the heater down, right? Like that happened this morning, right? Like it's a little bit hot. The, the truth is, is that we are least aware of the things that are most constant in our life. And the God of the scriptures is a God who keeps his promises. He is a God who, when he says something, he will do what he said he will do. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you, turn my back on you. Jesus said, last words written in the scriptures, in the letter of Revelation, Jesus said, I am with you always, even until the very ends of the age. He is a God who keeps his promises. Notice he didn't say, and you're going to feel it. You'll get God goosies when, when I'm around. Like, like he didn't say that. We've created that. That's not the God that we are intrigued by or interested in, or it's not the God that we're choosing to follow, and his name is Jesus. Mother Teresa is a hero of faith. Mother Teresa was somebody who gave her life serving the people around her, specifically serving those who were orphaned, who didn't have a mom and a dad and a home and a family. That, if you want to get like really biblical, that is a biblical way of life. It was James, the brother of Jesus, said that when you want to follow Jesus and if you want to get really biblical, that you would take care of the widows and you would take care of the orphans and keep yourself from being stained by the world. Mother Teresa lived a very godly, Jesus-following sort of life. She took care of orphans in Calcutta. There, there's a, a friend that I met years ago who went to see her, and he, he met her, and she was just this tiny woman, but a powerhouse in the world of the kingdom of God. He noticed that her feet were really curved. And so he asked somebody that was one of the caretakers of the orphanage, like, why, why is her feet so curved? Is she suffering from arthritis? Is it because she's old? And the caretaker said, none of those things. Her feet are curved because when we get donations of shoes, she always takes the last pair if there is a last pair so that all of the kids and all of the people here at the orphanage would have shoes that are comfortable. And she'll take the last pair whether they fit her or not. And you know what it's done? It's caused her feet to curl up. Mother Teresa. When she passed away, they found her diaries, her journals. And you know what they discovered? The last 20 years of her life, she wrote in these diaries, in these journals. She wrote these types of questions. God, where are you? God, are you here? Are you with me? God, what are you doing? Mother freaking Teresa didn't feel the presence of God all of the time. Because boyfriend God doesn't exist, friends. But what Mother Teresa taught us is what it looks like to be obedient to the God that you may not necessarily feel all of the time. Perhaps she heard the words of Jesus and decided that I'm going to be obedient to them and follow them. Words that Mark wrote down. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, there'll be times where you feel God, but then there'll be times where God will stir up your love There'll be times where God will allow you to step into your gifting. 
There'll be times where God challenges you intellectually and you know that he's present. You may not feel him the way that you feel other things, but you experience him in all sorts of different ways. Friends, God's presence is discovered in more ways than just your feelings. And if you hung your faith on boyfriend God, you've got the wrong God. Fourth perspective, the anti-science God. This is the belief that we must choose between science and religion. Here's the narrative that if you are a science person, you're a thinker, but if you're a religious person, then you're a believer, but you can't be both. In fact, there is a narrative out there that says if you're a believer or a follower of Jesus, then you have to stop thinking. I think some of the most miserable people on the planet are those who are brilliant, but somewhere along the line, they have come to believe that they can't engage their mind as they choose to follow Jesus. It was Richard Dawkins that once wrote, the one, one of the, the truly bad effects of religion is that it teaches us that it is a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding. Oh, it's just the God thing, and then we move on. But there are some brilliant, intelligent people sitting in this room that need more than just, it's a God thing. Friends, that's not faith. That's just moving it along so that we don't have to talk about it. And I think often we believe as followers of Jesus that we can engage our mind. But remember, Jesus says, love me with all of your mind. He gave us a brain. Let's put it to work. And by the way, we are actually not following Jesus because we shut our mind off. In fact, we aren't Christians because we believe things. We are Christians because we follow Jesus and following Jesus. You know how it started? It started because we saw something, we heard something, and we experienced something. John, who spent three years with Jesus, was there when Jesus resurrected from the grave, actually summarizes this in a beautiful way in John chapter 20, verse 8. When he runs into the tomb and he sees that the cloth that was around Jesus was not messy, but folded in the corner of the tomb, folded, not because somebody stole the body, but Jesus is alive and resurrected. And because he's got a good mama who taught him how to take care of his laundry, he folded his laundry before he left that tomb. And when John walked into the tomb, he said, and then wrote these words, I saw and I believed. It's not blind faith, friends. It's not, hey, you should, just, you should just do this and not have any evidence behind it. The reason why we follow Jesus is because he really lived and he really died and his tomb is really empty. That's why I put my faith in Jesus because he predicted his death and resurrection and then, friends, he did it. That's why I believe in him. That's faith. Faith isn't, it hasn't happened and so I'm just not going to, uh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna maybe manifest it myself. Faith is saying, if he did it then, he's going to do it now. If we can trust his words then, we can trust his words now. If we believe that he forgave them, man, I know that he can forgive me and vice versa. If he can forgive me, then I know he can forgive you because you don't even know what I've done. He does. Because he's good and gracious and kind. 
He invites me into life. This is why we follow Jesus. The God or science narrative is false. Here's a real life example of how it would work for us, that they actually can work together. If I wasn't feeling great, I would go to the doctor. Now, full disclosure, if I wasn't feeling great, I wouldn't go to the doctor until my wife made the appointment and forced me to go to the doctor and then probably had to go with me to the doctor, right? Fellas, you with me? Okay, good, I'm not alone. But I would go to the doctor and they would run tests to find out what's actually going on in me. And I'm thinking, let's, let's say that I'm, it's a serious thing. You know what I would do? I would wait with my phone to get an answer, to get a phone call, to find out what they found out. And you know what else I would do? I'd call you. I'd call you and say, hey, could you pray? Could you ask God to do a good work here? Could you ask God to heal me? Maybe that's how he does this. Could you ask God to give those doctors clarity, wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it as we move forward? Could you pray? That, that's engaging science and that's engaging God. If we are to love the Lord our God with all our mind, he has given a great mind to a lot of really great doctors to figure out what's going on inside of me. But he's also surrounded me with great people who love the Lord their God and would bend the knee on my behalf to ask God to do a good work in my life. Science and religion don't work against each other. In fact, maybe this is a better way to talk about it. Science helps us to understand how and when. God helps us to understand who and why. Now, I, I want to talk about one final perspective that we hold. This perspective is actually the one that we run from the quickest, but it's the hardest to forget and quit believing in. And that is guilt God. Guilt God is a belief that God controls you through fear and shame. Here's how it influences us. If we believe that it's enjoyable, we are convinced that God says no. If it's sexual, God says stop. If it's fun, God is here to get you in trouble. Guilt God is what a lot of us have believed in. And we often incorrectly believe that God loves us, but he doesn't like us very much. And a lot of this has been influenced by people who came long before us. There's a man named Jonathan Edwards who has written a lot of really great things about God, but has also said a lot of really interesting things about God. One of the things that he talks about is it's in one of his most famous messages, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And one of the analogies he gives in that message, and when I'm talking about a message, like what I'm doing right now to a church that is listening, he preached a message one time hundreds hundreds of years ago. And he taught that God is like a spider who has us caught in his web and he's dangling us over the fires of hell, inviting us, demanding of us to repent. If that was the God that was painted in front of me as a kid, no wonder I would feel guilty about what I've done. And no wonder I would feel ashamed of what I've done. And no wonder I would be afraid of that God. Friends, that God doesn't exist. That is not the God of the scriptures. Guilt is not from God. Conviction is. Guilt isn't from God because guilt 
brings about shame and about blame. Conviction is from God, from the power of the Holy Spirit, where you go, what have I done? Or what have I said? And I don't want to live like this anymore. And then realizing that you can run to your heavenly Father, because when you are in trouble, he is there to save you and to save the day. God isn't dangling you over the fires of hell. God is drawing you in through the death and resurrection of his son. God doesn't need to threaten you. He loves you. That's why Jesus came. And that announcement of love is the most unmissable announcement in all of history. Even people who don't believe in Jesus know that there was the crucifixion that actually happened. When I, when I look at the scriptures, there are two scriptures that come to mind that help to help reconstruct God, not as guilt God, but as heavenly father God. One of them is in Psalms 103 verse 8 that says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love. And then John, again, who spent three years with Jesus, he wrote a second letter in the scriptures. And he writes about what happens when you are convicted, when you find yourself stirred up, because you've done something, harmed someone, dishonored God by dishonoring them. Or you personally have done something that doesn't honor God. You know what John writes in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful, he will do it every single time. There won't be a time that you approach God in your mess, in your sin, and God will go, Again? God invites you in because the cross covers all of it. But he's also just. Meaning that it isn't just about you going, God, I'm so sorry. Are we good? And then moving on. God isn't looking for you to come to church and dump out your sin bucket and then take it with you and fill it back up during the week. If we have harmed or hurt those around us and we go to God and say, God, I confess the harm and the hurt, then forgiveness is offered and then we are invited to live in repentance, which means that we go to that person as difficult as it might be and we admit what we have done. And we don't say, I did this because you did that. We say, here's what I've done and would you please forgive me? That's what conviction does. That's what a just God does. That's what a faithful God does. And if you lost faith because of guilt, God, listen, that God never existed in the first place. Boyfriend God never existed in the first place. On-demand God never existed in the first place. Anti-science God never existed in the first place. The perspectives that we have held or have been taught as a young child just may have been incomplete or maybe perhaps even inaccurate. And if that's the reason why you walked away, you had a reason to walk away. But friends, today, my hope is that you would have a reason to come back. You would have a reason to re-engage again. Because God, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, is your heavenly Father. Where? Did your view of God, the view that you were taught of about God, where did that view that you begin to struggle with, where did it originate? Because my guess would be that 
It came from someone or something that communicated an inaccurate picture or an incomplete picture of the God who is for you. And we know this because of Jesus. So if you walked away or stayed away because these were the perspectives that you held, here's the good news. That God never existed in the first place. But there is a God who is for you. And his name is Jesus. And he gave his life for you. And he extends forgiveness to you. And he offers freedom and a new way forward. He gives you life for this life and then gives you life after this life. Maybe you aren't a Christian, but you've been to a funeral with crazy Christians who have this hope because somebody has died and you're wondering why they're not just devastated, but they keep talking about life after life. It's because the God who resurrected Jesus from the grave gives you life for this life and then gives you life after this life. When you trust in Jesus... And so, so last week we finished with an invitation to pray. God, show me who you are. Or God, show them who you are. And many of you, I, I, I felt it. I got the God goosies while I was praying. I, I knew that many of you were praying and a lot of you had reached out and said, here's what I'm praying for. Here's what I'm hoping for. Here's who I'm praying for. Hey, I'm praying for myself. This week, could we, could we continue that? But let's... Let's read together. Now, you don't have to do it at noon, but set an alarm each day, maybe in the morning, maybe at noon, or maybe in the evening, where we could read together. And, and I selected a, a scripture that I think is the best depiction of who God is and how God deals with you and with me. And it's, it's found in the letter that Luke writes. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. It's a parable that Jesus tells. Now, a parable is a made-up story with true principles. But what Jesus does in this story and what he does when he tells the people that are listening stories is he always helps them to understand who God is through images and through stories instead of just facts and figures because he wants them to understand that the deepest parts of their hearts and their souls, their deepest needs are met in their heavenly father. And so I wanna invite you this week to read this story that Jesus tells in Luke 15. Read it out loud by yourself or read it with your spouse. Read it with your significant other. Read it with your kids, but read it each day. And I know by Friday, you're gonna have it memorized because you're gonna be reading it all the way through the week. But I want us to get who God is and what God does in our hearts and in our minds so that when we find ourselves believing in the gods that we learned about as a child that aren't real and don't exist, we can always turn back to who God is and what God does because he is real and he is for us and he is good to us. He is the one true God. And I want us, I want us to know him and not just know him, but I want us to love him because he first loved us.
And so this week, I want to invite you to read with me, to take a few moments to read Luke 15, 11 to 32, as we discover who God is and what God does so that we can lean back into the one true God, that we can live with hope, that we can experience grace, and that we can be people that are set free. Let me pray some words over you. Heavenly Father, as we consider who you are, as we think about what you've done, and as we wrestle with all of the things that come to mind in this moment, all of the stories that we have heard, all of the people that we've interacted with, good and bad, God, I know that sometimes it can be hard to sift through all of the mess. So I pray that you would help us to commit this week to, to spending some time just reading about what Jesus said about you, our Heavenly Father. That we would be men and women, young and old, that would grasp to the best of our ability who you are and what you do. That we could come to a better understanding of who you are and what you do. And that all of the things that would keep us away or cause us to walk away would no longer be something that get in the way. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things and together we say amen and amen.